Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast, a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. today i'm doing really really well thank you for asking what about you overall you know you have a lot going on but how has it been overall i'm doing well i mean yeah there's a lot of things happening but being able to sit down with other people and hear their stories it's a really nice break from the realities of day-to-day of everything that's happening right now so i appreciate you coming on we're going to be talking about some very very important things today One of those things, or the main thing being bullying. And before we get into the chisme and your bio and everything, we (laughs) always start with the wine. Look at I'm so fancy with my cooler, you know, and I'm having an Espuerzo Wines Grenache Rosé at 2019. Oh my gosh, this is the first time I've had to pull something back to read it. I've now officially, if it, I'm normally I don't today I did. I was like, oh no, I've officially hit it. Okay, this is what it says on the back. It says, there's a reason we always say every bottle tells a story. The bottle that you hold in your hands, that glass you're sipping on, that wine is the result of much work. To get the grape to grow to the press to be made into wine takes a lot of time and love. Every year, the cycle of the vine tells a story of the bottle. Was there a heat spike? Did we have trust? Do the, though with those factors, who's turning it, taming it, farming it? Mm-hmm. Wow, my eyes. That's a, I'm official, I'm old. <laughs> we can distinctly tell you it's my grandfather and I. So Esfuerzo Wines, I they have actually been a sponsor. And I'm putting it back in my wine cooler because, you know, I'm fancy like that with the wine <laughs> cooler. They've done our virtual wine tastings. And it is Fidencio is the son and then it's his father and his grandfather that they all do this together. It's really awesome. They've been in wine for, they've been farming and he even designs Fidencio, the son. He even helps other people design what their vineyard should look like based on the topography, the weather, all of those different things. And he'll help people design the best way that their vine should like should be planted and grow. So it's really, really cool. So where are they? They're Uh, out of Santa Barbara County. They're in the Central Coast. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm definitely going to order a bottle from them because, you know, it's rare to find the Latin-owned wineries. Oh, girl, I got you. I have a whole (laughs) list. I'm going to send it to you. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree with you. And that's like one of the reasons. So I do these monthly virtual wine tastings. 
And it's the last Wednesday of every month that features solely Latino-owned wine brands. I love it. Specifically for that reason, because so many people don't realize. They think of us, right? They think of our community. They think of us working the land, not owning the brands. Right. So I really, it's been kind of a beyond sharing these stories that I think are so important. There's been an extra layer that has been added to the podcast, and that's really sharing these Latino vintners, because so often we are forgotten in an industry that we are so prominent in, in regards to the production, Mm -hmm. the farming and the production of the wine. But people forget about us when it comes to anything else. So I got you. I haven't even taken a sip yet. And look at me. You're already dropping stuff. (laughs) I'm already hitting things, you know, but that's what happens. So are you drinking anything today? I wanted to, but I ran out. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, thank you so much for inviting me to come and have this conversation with you. Oh my gosh. I, like I said, this is a really important conversation. So let me kind of go over your bio so people know where we're starting. Oh my gosh. Let me drink my wine first and give you my sound effects. Hold on. Ready? (laughs) I love it. Those are my sound effects. Ooh. Oh. So this rosé, it's definitely fruit forward. It's not really, it's more of a dry rosé. It's not really sweet, which I appreciate because oh, see, I love the, I yeah. love the sweet ones. You like the sweet ones? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This one's a little more dry. I think you would really like Cesoles. Cesoles rosé. They have, it's a rosé blend and it's a little bit too sweet for me, but it's not like super sweet, but it's really good. Okay. That sounds good. Yeah, I'm friends with the owner there too. And he's doing a really amazing job in regards to promoting his wines. And he just launched his wine brand right in the middle of pandemic last year. Wow, that's bold because, you know, like people weren't really going after the wine (laughs) during a pandemic. They were more like survival mode. And uh, oh my gosh, alcohol sales went up like crazy, including wine during pandemic. Yeah. Well, I, you know, that shouldn't surprise me considering that I too invested in in alcohol more than I have ever this past year. And I'm not saying I get tore up or anything. It's just that I love to just have a glass of wine at any time. And it's just for pleasure and enjoyment. And I drink it slow because I feel like that's how you should have alcohol. You should enjoy it. And as a matter of fact, when you were reading that label on that um, on the bottle, it made me realize I actually think about who created this wine that I'm drinking right now. And I think about nuestra gente because they are the ones usually doing all that hard work. So I try to enjoy it even more because of that, especially yeah. like. Like things that come, you know, like fruit, things like that, because I do have friends in that industry who, I mean, luckily they're up in the higher echelons of it. Like I have a friend in in Driscoll's. Uh, Okay. Yeah, I know Driscoll. Yeah. She's in charge of all the farms and making sure that the farmers have the right fruits for that season and stuff. So when I, you know, and she tells me about nuestra gente, what, how hard they're working and what they're trying to take, do to take care of them. I'm like, okay, I'm going to enjoy this fruit. because Yeah. And you know what? Last year, so my grandpa, my abuelo, he actually worked in the citrus trees and stuff. So with all the citrus here in San Diego, he used to work and then supervise the workers that would pick the lemons, the limes, the avocados, the grapefruits, all of that stuff. So I think of those things as well. 
Ooh, wait, I see a bottle. I see. My a- husband just brought this down for me. <laughs> he's the best, I tell he, you. <laughs> okay, he's super sweet already. Well, okay, what did he bring you down? Oh, I'm having the cheap stuff. I am having this Roscado Rosé Dolce, sweet rose, because he knows that I love the sweet ones. I buy them also because they're cheap and because I kind of go through quite a few bottles. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? There's nothing wrong with an inexpensive bottle of wine if you like it. So I've seen a lot of people on TikTok and I've seen wine snobs on TikTok. Not everybody's a wine snob, but I've seen people say, oh my gosh, like this is, they go to the grocery store and they're like, I would never take this if this was the last thing to drink ever on earth or whatever. And I get so mad at that. I'm like, first of all, not everybody has the means to buy like an expensive bottle of wine. And you don't even have to buy an expensive bottle of wine. There's plenty of wines that are inexpensive that are good. But if you ultimately, if you like it, that's all that matters. Like, I don't have to like it to make it be good to you. Everybody has a different palate. So true. true. Because I remember when I first started trying wines, I, my friend uh, introduced me to Barefoot. And somebody saw me (laughs) drinking. They were like, oh, that cheap crap. And they were talking so much. I was like, you know what? It's cheap, but I like it. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but you're right. It's whatever you like. And I have tried the really expensive ones too. Delicious. But if I'm going to be drinking more often, I need to get the cheaper stuff. <laughs> so let me somebody. tell you, me and my sister, my sister lives, one of my sisters lives in Oregon and we went wine tasting over there. And the guy that was doing our, like leading our wine tasting, he was sharing, oh, you know, we have this wine. It hasn't, you know, it's not fully ready yet. And he brought it to us straight from the barrel and brought us something. And he's like, which one's your favorite? I'm like, why can't you be selling this one yet? It's so good. And that was, of course, the super pricey one. Oh, I was yeah. like, really? Mm-hmm. Of course, that's the one yeah. that I'm going to pick. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm not going to lie. I've been spoiled with all of our vintners that we feature for the virtual wine tastings and whoever sponsored. I've been really spoiled because man, these wines are just bomb. They're so good. Oh my gosh. And you can tell they take their time. They really want your experience to be the best experience with their wine. And it's just so good. I love it. So I love it. (laughs) I need to explore more wines. Well, I got you. I'll say, like I said, I have a list and I'm actually putting together something bigger to go on my website to send that out because I keep getting people asking me. So I put something like generally together, but I'm going to be separating it into regions and. Oh, wow. Well, yes. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dali, let's get into it because you are the creator of the Anti-Bullying and Diversity Academy. So also known as DABA. And it's a series of online mini courses and in-person workshops for parents, guardians, and educators to learn how and what to teach their kids about bullying and how to embrace others' differences as well as their own in order to promote equality. When I was reading your bio, I almost started to cry. And we'll get into it. We'll talk about all of the things. But it's so important. I'm not a parent, but I'm a Thea. And it's important. If you interact with kids in any way, shape, or form, it is important to know how to talk to them about bullying, about being bullied, all of those things, and to be an open vessel that they feel like they can talk to. Absolutely. And I want to stress the fact that, at least in our culture, being a tia is like being a second mother. 
So while a child might not feel comfortable going to mom and dad for something, they'll go to the tia. Yeah. And that's priceless. So yeah, yeah. I pretty much work with any adult who wants to learn how to open up that line of communication and provide the support and talk about, you know, preventing anything from happening. Of course, mainly bullying because it's really prevalent nowadays. If it doesn't happen in person, it's happening online. Oh my gosh. Can you, I cannot even imagine growing up in a time of social media. Yeah. Because I was bullied to the point where I would call my mom at lunchtime in middle school and crying to cover, come pick me up. Wow. And like I said, we can get into it more later, but I can't imagine if there was an online presence at that time as well. Mm -hmm. I agree. I wouldn't have been able to make it because I got bullied pretty heavily too. So you said that your passion started because of your own experience. Can you tell Mm -hmm. me like, where did you grow? I know you're in the East Coast now. You're in the Maryland area now. Where did you grow up and what was that experience like? So I moved from Nicaragua at the age of seven. So 1986. And until I moved to the U.S., I hadn't experienced bullying because in our countries, I don't know, everybody just played with everybody. Maybe I was just too young to notice or oblivious. But I think at first, I thought that I experienced bullying because I was an immigrant. You know, when you come here as a child, nobody tells you certain things that maybe you should know so that you can kind of be careful. So I arrive, I start school. I don't know a word of English. And kids are pointing at me and then there's like, suddenly there's this emphasis on fashion and designers. And in Nicaragua, you don't care about that because I think life over there is more about survival and just like enjoying the life that you have. It's not so materialistic like here. Oh yeah. Going to school is like a fashion show, right? Oh my gosh. Yes. I remember my, my bully, uh, Yadira, she would point out like, why don't you have these shoes? I have these shoes. These are Nike and or LA gear back in the day. Oh yeah. I remember (laughs) LA gear. Yeah. (laughs) And um, Adidas and, you know, and I was like, what is she talking about? It all started with teasing, but then, you know, it just becomes too intense about my dialect because in Nicaragua, we say things different. We we don't say tú, we say vos, you know, like, mira, que quieres vos? No es, mira, que quieres tú? You're, the, you're where the vosotros comes from. No? That's right, yeah. Because <laughs> I was like going to school, I'm like, what the hell is this? I know, right? Why are yeah. they teaching us this vosotros? I've never heard of it. Actually, we don't even use vosotros. That's a Castellano thing from España. So we yeah. just say vos, like to refer to you and but we only say that to friends or like very or like other peers uh-huh. we don't say that to our elders that's a big oh one. heck no 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 no, no, no. Es, no, no. you know <laughs> so that's how it started and then I got bullied for being too dark and black kids would make fun of me and and they would say like are oh, you trying to you know cross over to the dark side and then they would call me the n-word and they would call me a, a wetback Mexican and and I had no idea what a wetback Mexican was. So I think one of the kids told me what it was. And one day I'm playing tetherball with this really, really skinny, intimidating black girl. And Calandria Williams, wherever she is. <laughs> Calandria, think, you made an impact. <laughs> yeah, you sure did. And I feel so bad for her because I realized after our incident where her aggression came from. But I beat her at tetherball like I usually did. 
And she had this idea that because I'm this little Latina who barely spoke English, how dare you beat me? Because I'm this strong Black girl. And she called me the N-word. And so I called her the N-word back. And she said, go back to Mexico. And I said, you go back to... And I was like, oh yeah, I heard Africa. So I'm like, you go back to Africa. And she just almost cried when I said that. And I was like, I don't know what just happened because I didn't understand. I hadn't had that class about slavery and black people, you know, Africans being brought to the U.S. I had no, no knowledge mm-hmm. of history. So here I am trying to defend myself because she would just always, always pick on me every single day. And I'm sitting in front of the principal uh, just in one room with Calandria. And that was the day I found out why she referred to me as a wetback, as a beaner, uh, what a Mexican was, and the N-word. And then the teacher or the principal asked me, why did you call her the N-word? I said, well, she called me that. So I called her that. And then she told me to go back to Mexico. And so I said, go back to Africa because I heard other kids say that. I think that my answer surprised the principal too. Because it was like, oh, this kid had no idea. She was just trying to defend herself. And then with Calandria, she just had a lot of internal pain from racist things that had happened to her. And, you know, at that point, like my anger completely diminished. And then I could empathize with her. Like I suddenly I understood like, oh, man, that's why she was being like that. And of course, I I continue to get bullied after that by other people. What was your relationship with Calandria after that? I mean, we we would just in passing, just look at like nod at each other, but we never really had a, a relationship, but she never messed with me again, ever, ever again. I think if anything, she kind of just like stayed out of my way and I got bullied by a boy later on and she heard about it and she kind of, I remember one day she passed by me and she's like, you did good or something like he had it coming. <laughs> so... I'm not uh, encouraging violence. (laughs) That's just something that happened to me and I I had to fight back. And, you know, the thing about that is that it starts so small. It seems like it's just teasing. And so many adults look at it as just kids trying to figure themselves out and work out relationships. But when it starts affecting your psyche and your emotional state, when you start trying to avoid going to school, which in the U.S. before the pandemic, there was approximately 150,000 kids who would miss school daily to avoid a bully. So people think it's not a big deal. But then you have 150,000 kids every single day missing school because of just to avoid a bully. That's a huge problem. No, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Did you talk to your parents about like when you went through that incident? Because I feel like back then, right, because you're only a couple years younger than me. Back then, they wouldn't necessarily call your parents for everything. They would just bring you into the print, unless it was like, where when I was in third grade, I drew blood from another girl, oh, <laughs> scratched man. her up so bad. So then they had to call my parents because mm-hmm. there's a physical issue. But I feel like when it came to quote unquote bullying, unless they didn't really go to your parents, and I don't even know if they still do or not. I think unless it's an extreme circumstance, I don't know what, I mean, you please enlighten me on that, but. Is this something that you, when you were going through it, did you ever talk to your parents about it? Or did you ask them, like, why am I being called a Mexican? Why am I being called a wetback? Like, were, did you ever have that those conversations with them? So actually, I never told them until Calandria and I got into that fight. 
And even then they didn't really understand what had happened because my mom was the one at home and she didn't speak very much English. And I remember somebody, I think I translated and you know, like, yeah, you don't really know how to translate properly at that age, especially when you're still learning the language. So I remember that she understood that both of us had to be suspended because there was no tolerance with violence at school. And she just understood that she had been mean to me. She, I mean, this word bullying was not something that you used back then. So she used to always say, well, you know, I'm glad you defended yourself. She was being mean to you. And that was that. But it wasn't just Calandria. It was other kids, too. And it was different types of bullying, the types where you can't really explain as a child because you don't have the language or nobody's taught you, uh, which is something that I focus on teaching today. For example, when Yadira decided to paint this picture of me being a certain way, then what she did is that she she tarnished my character to be this weak child that nobody wanted to play with. She was saying things like, if you choose her for your soccer team, she's going to help you lose, not win. So then everybody would pick everybody else but me. And if there was an event going on and she was inviting the whole class, I wasn't invited. And to the teacher, it's like, well, I mean, she has a right to not invite you to her event. But the reason behind that was because of these preconceived notions of me or these prejudices against me, right? Now I learned that social bullying when you start spreading rumors about somebody, whether, you know. And the girls are vicious about that. Right, they are. And I mean, not to exclude boys, boys do it too, but it's more prominent among girls. So what happens then is, you know, you start feeling like you're that outcast, like you're not good enough. And to this day, I struggle with that. I mean, I really struggle with that. Um, I went into the military somehow. I had enough confidence to go into the military when I got, you know, right out of of high school. And I remember feeling that, that I'm not good enough throughout the entire time, although I kept climbing the ladder. And I went pretty high, especially for being young. And every single time that I hit another level, I just kept saying, gosh, I'm just not good enough. I'm too young or I'm not experienced enough or I just got lucky or this and that. So part of that is imposter syndrome, right? But a lot of it comes from that old idea that all these kids say, you know, you're not good enough. Like you're too dark or you're too dumb or you don't speak English well. So you have an accent. So you're dumb. Not realizing having an accent is a badge of honor because that means that you have taken the, the discipline to teach yourself another language, whether you have to or not, it doesn't matter. The point is you did it and you're able to communicate in a totally different language. You have overcome barriers, you know, not just with the language, but with the culture. Having to assimilate is a big challenge because when you assimilate, you're kind of told to leave some of your roots behind or not use them here. It's like take that home, but don't do it here. Um, so it affects you and having been bullied also at work, um, as an adult, that's also, I mean, it happens so much and people don't really think about it unless I give them an example of how it happens at work. And, you know, I've had so many classes with adults and I give them the examples and I, you know, I'm, I'm sharing some and then they're like, oh my gosh, my coworkers being bullied. 
if that's bullying at work, then my coworker is being bullied. Or some people even say, oh my gosh, I was being bullied and I didn't realize it. I thought I was just being weak. I thought I was just being a flake. I thought I was being soft because that's what people say. You know, if you can't handle critic, supposedly criticism, then you're too soft. And people, com- they confuse criticism with constructive criticism. They're not the same. Exactly. And I think that we underestimate like how you can get bullied within your own family as well Mm. by things that they're saying or by things. And not to say that your family is into, sometimes maybe your family is intentionally doing it, but I think particularly parents saying certain things to their kids, right? Even to this day, I get, ah, you're so sensitive. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yes. And I'm like, excuse me, just because I'm not reacting the way you want me to react does not mean that I'm too sensitive. And you know, the other thing too, is that sometimes it's not to criticize in a bad way. Sometimes it's the term of endearments that get you. Por ejemplo, ay, que estás gordita. And yeah. so then el apodo is, or el, el nombre is gordita or chaparrita or. Um, Why in our, what, let me ask. It's so mm-hmm. funny because I know so many people that are listening to this. First of all, when she's talking about it, for those who don't speak Spanish, like our, within the Latino community, we have this tendency to grab onto the weakness and nickname you with that. Yeah. So, or the opposite. So sometimes they'll call somebody really chunky flaca, like skinny, and they'll call somebody really skinny, chunky, Mm -hmm. just as like, but they will constantly like whatever your, your quote unquote weakness is, that's kind of what you end up getting your nickname from or what their family perceives as your weakness. That may not necessarily be your weakness or anything, but what your family perceives as that. And I think we're the only community that does that in that way. I don't know Outside of the Latino community? I think there are other communities that do it, but I think it's how it's done that's different. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, like one person told me, uh, this man in his 40s, he said, you know, my mom, every time I would do something dumb when I was little, she would call me burro. She says, ay, que burro. So, which is a donkey, right? Yeah. So he said, and I just had a conversation not long ago, he said, so he's in his 40s, okay? And he just had this conversation with his mom and that came up and he said, and I realized that she didn't know that I felt like she really thought I was dumb until they had that conversation. And he said, and all my life, I thought I was dumb. I always thought I had to go the extra mile to learn something better so that I wouldn't be ese burro, you know, that donkey. And I thought, wow, tell me that bullying doesn't affect you. Yeah. You have oh my God. Did you experience that through elementary, middle school, high school, or did it change at some point? It changed, I would say, at seventh grade. It was mostly because the bullies left and also because by then my English was better and I kind of secluded myself more. I learned to make my community just my siblings and I'm the oldest of six. So my friends were my siblings. I really didn't have friends until eighth grade. My first friend, um, who was this Mexican girl. And through her, I learned. And this was in, you went from Nicaragua to Maryland? Is that where you went? No, actually, I went from Nicaragua to California, Southern okay. California. So I grew up in Ontario or Ontario. 
And yeah, that's in the my, IE. In the IE, yeah, that's right. <laughs> the nine oh nine. How do you know? Yeah. I'm from yeah. San Diego. I get it. Oh, I know. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I was in the IE, and um, I remember Yesenia was my first friend, and I remember I learned how white Latinos could be until I met her because she was green eyes, blonde hair. Bien Blanca, very, very fair skin. I thought she was a white girl. And then she started speaking and I'm like, what? You have an accent. She's like, oh yeah, I'm Mexican. I'm like, whoa, that is so cool. So eighth grade is when I learned about that because all the other Latinos I'd ever met before then, or at least noticed, there were like different shades of brown, you know? Right. And, and that was my first friend, friend, like actual friend. And then- right. High school came and then my mom got me very, very involved in, in a church, a Mormon church that I ended up like having the best time with the youth programs. And that's where I actually ended up with having more friends. I mean, not, not a ton, I like a little group of six and they happened to go to the same school that I did. So that helped improve a lot, a lot. I still had my insecurities. Right. So was all your bullying based on being an immigrant in language and not knowing the language? Was that where most of your bullying was? Yeah. And also because I was very poor. I lived in the hood over there in in Ontario. And then I also moved around a lot. I also lived in a very violent home. My dad was very, very violent. So we moved around a lot. And the violence at home affects kids, or at least me and my siblings, in a way where you think that you're worthless because that's what you get. That's what you deserve. This is what God handed you. At least I thought, you know, I was like, I don't know. I must deserve it because that's what God chose to give me. This father that does this stuff to us, you know, and a mother that's not strong enough to leave. And I'm just thinking like how much, because you're getting that at home and then you're getting bullied. You must think Mm -hmm. Like, I, just I, I couldn't. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah. you must think as a kid, this is what life is. And this must be what I deserve because yeah. I get this at home. I get this at school. Like, and I that's remember so heartbreaking. Yeah, I remember going home and praying to die. Like, it was like, I hope that I don't wake up tomorrow. I just can't take this anymore. I remember asking my mom, like, please leave him. I would rather live under a bridge and eat out of trash cans than to live one more day in this house with this man. Luckily, he left by the time I was, I think, before I turned 14 or right after I turned 14. So by high school, when I started my freshman year, he was already gone. And it was like freedom, like discovering a new world. But all of that, because you know what happens when kids live in a home where violence happens? You, number one, you think it's normal until you end up going to a friend's house where that's not a thing. And you're like, oh, that's not normal. And they were like, oh man, so it's just my family. And then you feel less than because they're like, oh, I'm embarrassed to even let them know that this happens at my house. The other thing that happens too is that I did become violent at some point with my own siblings. As a kid, you're learning what you're seeing at home. Yeah. And, and domestic violence is very, very related to bullying because that's how it starts. It starts with bullying, which is a softer version of harassment or, or violence. And so I remember my, my siblings got tired of me, like hitting them here and there. 
And I remember they they all like they pretty much jumped me at home. <laughs> and they were like, <laughs> You're gonna be a horrible mother when you grow up. And I was like, <gasps> and that impacted me so much that I was like, that's it. I'm not hitting them anymore. I don't want to become that parent that hits mm-hmm. their kids. And the other thing that too, I want to make sure that I mention is that when you're a child living in a house where there's violence, you learn that that intimidator, that person, they will silence you without even telling you to be silent because they show you with their actions, what's going to happen to you if you speak up for yourself. So that was another thing that I think contributed to me not speaking up or standing up for myself when I was being bullied. Wow. I told you that I got bullied when I was, I don't think I, I don't remember being bullied in elementary school, but for sure in middle school. And mine was because I was chunky and everybody would just pile on in regards to that. And I wanted to be liked. Mm -hmm. I wanted everybody to like me. I didn't want to be disliked. And I would take a lot of verbal abuse from other kids. Somebody who ended up being a good friend, but we were definitely frenemies in sixth (laughs) and seventh grade. We went from like hating each other in sixth grade to becoming frenemies in seventh grade (laughs) to becoming like really close by the time we were in eighth grade. Mm -hmm. But I distinctly remember one time when she told me like we were by the little theater. I don't know what we were talking about. And Somebody said that I was the back, I was the size of it. And I wasn't like, it wasn't like I was like this, but there was so, you know, I was just, I could see pictures and I'm like, oh my gosh, people would make fun of me. And that's what I looked like. I wasn't just because I wasn't like super skinny. I wasn't really a big kid. So it was like, I look at those pictures and I, I find it very disturbing that that's what they, but that was my insecurity that, and then that became my super insecurity. So People would jump on that because they would know I was so insecure about that. And somebody called me the backseat of a car, that I was as big as backseat of a car. And then she said, well, fuck that. She's just the whole damn car. Wow. But you see, and you can't blame yourself for thinking negatively about yourself when that's all you hear, because you eventually start to believe it. Just like you eventually start believing that you deserve that type of talk. When everybody's yeah. doing it, you're like, well, I deserve it because it's happening. Everybody's doing it. There's gotta It's be still an insecurity of mine because my sisters oh, sure. are very thin. Mm-hmm. One of my sisters is, has four boys and she's like a size zero or two. Mm-hmm. And my other sister is really small as well. And I'm not. And it's still an insecurity of mine. I try not, you know, I, I work out, I eat right, but I won't ever be their size. So every once in a while, that definitely hits. Did you ever feel okay to go to a teacher or to tell them what's happening? Like this made you feel a specific way? You just had, you just suffered in silence with it? I did because the other thing was too that all of my teachers were white and I did not feel like they were approachable because they didn't really understand a lot of my culture. And you know, it's weird that you feel like that, although it's not something that they say. Right. It's how you're treated, you know, like or the uh, stories that they tell. Right. Because I I was having this conversation with a friend and saying, guy, I don't even remember when I had my first Latino teacher. Maybe it was high school. I don't even know if I had. I know I had at least one, maybe two Latino teachers in high school. Wow. You know what? I've never thought of that until now. 
Yeah. Mine was Mr. Chavez Spanish class in high school. And I only took Spanish class because, because my mom wanted me to speak correct Spanish. And then we found out it was Castellano Spanish. And she yeah. Was like, I'm like, that's not <laughs> our correct Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? And, and especially living in a place like for both of us in California. Yeah. I grew up in Escondido, which is North County, San Diego. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I grew up, what, 35, 40 minutes from the border. Mm-hmm. Isn't and that crazy? I, yeah, I was, yeah, me and a friend were talking about that too recently. And I was like, what, how could we live so close to the border? And I never had a Latino teacher mm-hmm. until I got to high school. Yeah. And I, I don't think- even know if that was in Escondido or if it was when I lived in Albuquerque. Yeah. It's crazy because I think that we all assume, okay, I live in this area. There's lots of Latinos. They're going to understand if they see it happening. But one thing I want people to understand is that the majority of bullying happens in the presence of many, not just one. But the thing is that it happens in other types of bullying, not just physical. So if you don't have the bruises, the cuts, the blood, the swelling, you know, to show that you have been bullied, then it's really hard to explain, especially if you're younger, and it's really hard to prove. So you have social bullying, which is something that I explained earlier, like, you know, Yadira not inviting me to all this and telling everybody that I should not be somebody that they should consider for projects or soccer games or whatever. Like you had the cooties. Exactly. Like, ooh, don't talk to her. Her her character is tarnished. She has been removed from her society because so-and-so said that she's not worthy or that this is wrong with her. So that's social bullying. Then you have, of course, physical bullying, which includes somebody, maybe they're not hitting you all the time, but they're constantly vandalizing your property or stealing it or part of your clothes or whatever. Then you have uh, verbal bullying, which people also refer to as emotional bullying or mental bullying. And that one's really hard, especially for little kids, because that's when you have those backhanded compliments. Those microaggressions too. Yes. You don't realize it until you're mm-hmm. older of right. what's happening. Or that that uh, the sarcasm in the voice or the, you know, the aggressive tone. I mean, what kid is going to go and say, have you ever heard a child go to the teacher and say, yeah, so-and-so is bullying me. They're constantly being very condescending to me. And they're like, oh, condescending to you. Oh, not a big deal. There is just a lack of communication. But when it's happening all the time, they're being condescending to you then it's bullying. That's what it is. And bullying is something that is unwanted. It has a perception of being repeated or it is already being repeated. Usually it makes you feel bad. And people constantly, constantly confuse teasing with bullying. And bullying is way more than that because it affects you psychologically and even physically. Like some kids literally get sick to their stomach thinking, oh my gosh, I have to go to this place where that bully is going to be. And that's why we're constantly trying to avoid it. Like you said, 150,000 kids prior to pandemic Mm -hmm. missing school back in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, I said it. That's how old I am. (laughs) When I was in middle school, (laughs) I'm like, hey, I'm class of 97. I'm not ashamed. I'm 42. Yeah, I'm class of 95. So I get, yeah, I would, yeah, I would totally avoid that. There was certain classes that I didn't want to be in. Mm-hmm. And so right before I'd get to that class, I would call my mom crying to come get me at school. Aww. Man, if I could just go and hug you, little you, I would. Just like I would go back and hug myself and tell my tell me like, you know what, you're going to be okay. And it's so crazy that I ended up doing this work. And let me tell you the reason 
why I ended up doing the work that I do is because my baby was bullied when she started kindergarten. And in my Mm -hmm. mind, I thought bullying happened only when you got older or if you had such a big difference that people just couldn't, can't ignore. So I thought, I thought the reason I got bullied was because I was an immigrant kid and come to find out bullying comes, it happens due to so many reasons, like the kid who's being bullied at home and then they don't know how to express those emotions. So they take them out at school or at church or at the playground or wherever, which is something that concerns me right now with a pandemic having gone on. We have a year and a half of uh, quarantine, pretty much kids being at home, not having social skills, building social skills. So a lot of them have been bullied at home during this pandemic and they haven't been talking to counselors. They haven't been Mm. dealing with their emotions. So now they're all going to go back to school and the schools, I really don't think are ready to manage this. I think that they need to really amplify the in-depth education about bullying awareness and how to recognize signs when somebody is um, dealing with it and signs of the kids who are exhibiting the behaviors. Because one thing I want to also stress is that when a child, quote unquote, a bully, um, is doing that to others, that this is not something that should define them. Just because they're exhibiting the behavior doesn't mean that they are a bad kid or that they are indefinitely that bully. They're just kids who are struggling. They haven't been provided with the resources or the education to deal with their emotions and to learn that, hey, this happens at home and it's normal. But guess what? That's just that you're home and it is not normal. Here, this is how you treat people, not like that. And many, many kids don't even know that they are being a bully to somebody, you know, Mm. exhibiting those behaviors. And we really need to educate our our people about this because it's not a priority for most. So if you, I'm going to ask you like a two-part question. The first Mm -hmm. part is, if you're a parent worried about this, worried about like my kid has not been around people, maybe they were bullied or maybe they were the bully. And I'll ask that question in a minute, but you were saying you don't think that the schools are prepared. The first of my two-part questions is how can parents talk to the schools to get the resources in regards to making sure that kids have a place or to be able to deal with the bullying and being bullied? And second, how do you handle a child when you realize that your child is a bully? Because no, I think a lot of parents don't ever want to think that their kid is a bully. Yeah, some parents have parent blinders on, as what I call them. But to answer your first question, you have so much power as a parent or a guardian or a tia or a grandparent. You, I mean, you don't even have to have children to call your local school and ask, hey, what is your bullying policy? How do you handle incidents? What are you doing? What kind of education? Can I see the curriculum that you're providing for anti-bullying education? And then if you see something in there that you don't like or that you feel like needs to be emphasized or that is missing, you as a community member, as a taxpayer, have the right to call up the principal, the vice principal, the superintendent of the school district and say, hey, I noticed that this is lacking. Can we do something about it? But when you go to a school and submit your opinion on something, your criticism or ask, also provide a solution. So you can tell them, hey, so we don't have funding for this, which 
by the way, you have every right to ask for the budget for that school year. Usually the site school council, which is a group of parents, teachers, the principal and community members make up the site school council. They meet once a month. The minutes should be available online to the public. And if you cannot attend, you can submit a question or a request ahead of time of that meeting. But that's where you can say, let me look at the budget. How much is allocated for this type of community outreach services? Because they do have a community outreach budget that is supposed to cover things like bullying awareness, not just for the kids, but for the parents. And I'll tell you one thing. Most schools in the United States have, quote unquote, anti-bullying programs, but they're very, depending on the school, some are very, very minimal. They're just like a little handbook or a handout that they give out at the beginning of the school year. And maybe they talk about it right before a holiday and then right right when they return after a holiday, but it's minimal. And then the PTA or the PTO, the Parent Teacher Association or Parent Teacher Organization, that's a nonprofit organization that's ran by parents. Do not underestimate these groups. A lot of people see them as just moms that do bake sales to raise funds, but their operating budgets are usually in like 100,000 to 200,000 or more a year, a school year. They're huge. They're very powerful. So if your school site council says, I don't have money to hire this anti-bullying expert to come and give us more classes to our teachers, our kids, or our parents, then you can go to PTO or PTA and say, hey, let's do a fundraiser to raise these funds for this anti-bullying educator or coach. And guess what? Everything in life is negotiable. So if a person is offering anti-bullying education or a curriculum and it's too expensive for your school, offer them something, you know, like, hey, can you work with our budget? Can you meet me in the middle? Because I love what you're offering and I really want this for my school or for my community. So that's the power that you have as a parent or as a community member that pays taxes. Because remember, schools are funded because of you, your taxes. And to answer your second question, how to help the child who is exhibiting the the bullying behaviors. So how to help, quote unquote, the bully. First and foremost, let that child know that you love them because they need to hear that. Because they need to hear that regardless of the mistakes that they make, because mistakes do not define who you are. And I think that that's number two. You need to tell your child, you are not a bully and this does not define you. You can get past this. And talk it out with them like, hey, where is this coming from? Why did you have the need to do this to this person? We need to make things right and you need to apologize, but I want you to do it until you actually feel it from the heart, not just because I'm telling you to. And you need to go further and and ask, what can I do to help you? And always ask your child for a solution because you want them involved. When you ask a child for their opinion about how to solve their own problem, you're not just asking what their opinion is. You're pretty much showing them that you trust them, that you validate and you value their opinion. And, you know, not every and kid. And don't kids feel it. empowered by that? Exactly. Like they feel yeah. empowered and mm-hmm. more likely to follow through on those things if they exactly. feel like they're part of it. Yeah. And not only that, but, you know, you are creating trust. You're showing them that you have unconditional love which means there's no strings attached. That means 
In order for my mom to love me, I don't have to be a perfect kid. In order for my dad to love me, I don't have to be a straight A student. You know, my parent will love me even though I make these big mistakes. And that's what you need to do and tell them like, you know, I'm here for you. And of course, not every child is going to suggest a sound solution. So if you need to reject that solution that they propose, say, you know what? Thank you for sharing that. But what if we do this? Because you're not exactly saying, no, you're wrong. That's dumb. You're just saying, okay, thank you. But you know, what about this? What do you think about that? And usually most times they'll be like, you know what? I think that would work. And then if they still challenge you on that, like, you know, if we do it your way, this is why I think it won't work. And usually kids were like, okay, that makes sense. I'll listen to mom and dad. And then if you need even more help, seek out a professional, get that counselor so that they can learn how to express their emotions, how to get through that anger or that fear, whatever, wherever this is coming from. And ask, is this coming because somebody is bullying you? Is it because you're watching somebody that you might idolize that might be aggressive? Maybe they're idolizing a bully because kids confuse power with aggression and violence sometimes. Right. Especially when they're watching movies of like Al Pacino. <laughs> He's seen as this very hyper-masculine powerful man in control, but he does everything through fear and violence. And we need to talk to our kids about those depictions because they're shaping the way that they think of themselves and the way that they're going to think of others. So on the opposite side of that, because I think it's really important, like you said, I think when you're a kid, you want to be perfect. You don't want to disappoint your parents and having your parents disappointed in you, I think for me was always worse than them being angry. Oh my gosh. Yes. Painful. Yeah, because you're just like, then I always felt like it was something they'll always remember. They'll forget. They'll forget why they were angry at me, (laughs) but they won't forget why they were disappointed in me. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. But on the opposite end, how do you tell if your kid, if they don't want to tell you? Because like I said, my bullying in in middle school was really extreme to the point where I would call my mom. I honestly don't know if my mom ever said anything or if I, but I also know that by the time I hit eighth grade, I went from being bullied to being the bully. Mm -hmm. That's very common. So what do you do in that particular case? Because like, for me, I was like, I'm sick of this. Like, Mm -hmm. uh uh-uh, I'm not going to let anybody do this to me anymore. And then I became the bully. Mm -hmm. How do you avoid transition? The first part of your question was how to ask your child if that's happening to them. Right. So kids, you know, you ask them, how was your day? And they're going to say, it was fine. So to pull out the questions with an open-ended answer, I ask an open-ended question. So these three questions I do to this day, since my kids were little, I ask them when we're sitting around the dinner table, because it's very common in Latin families, you sit around the table and everybody takes a turn and you need to share three things that you liked about your day, then three things that you didn't like very much about your day. And the last question is, if you could change one thing from your day, what would it be? And you'd be so surprised how much kids will speak. Because when you do, when you ask these questions, you're putting a spotlight on them and kids love to be seen, to be heard and to be validated. So, I mean, you don't have to use these three questions I just mentioned. 
make up your own as long as they're open-ended. Not, you know, if you don't understand what an open-ended question is, is an, a question that gives you an answer that is not a yes or a no. Yeah. It has to be something that they elaborate on. When I worked at a nonprofit youth development, the kids passed to come see me, come see Miss Jessica, was you need to tell me one thing you learned at school today. Mm-hmm. That was their, that was their pass. If they couldn't tell me, like I stopped asking, and I do this with my nephews, my nieces and nephews too. I don't ask them, how was your day? Because I know, fine, it was good, it was fine, whatever. Like I already know what that answer is going to be. Right. So I started saying, oh, tell me one thing you learned at school today. I don't know. I'm like, no, you know one thing. You walked away with something. Are you telling me you're not smarter today than you were yesterday? Mm -hmm. And when they're like, oh, I mean, oh, they get all like... (laughs) Well, like, yeah, of course I am, Tia Jay. <laughs> you're being an awesome Tia because you're challenging them because, oh my gosh, they, I think they don't really understand that as an adult, you actually do care about their life. A lot of them, they're like, oh, they're old. They don't care. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like my daughters right now, one of them is into anime, these manga books. And I'm like, oh, mangas, like mangas, no tengo mangas on my, in mis blusas, you know? And they're like, mom, stop. So I make, I make a joke out of it. But then I, I still ask, like, tell me about your manga. And then every time I say your manga, I like get my, my, cause manga means sleeve, right? <laughs> and that's like breaking the ice so that we can have that conversation. So you have to find your own little thing that you do to break the ice and, and get them talking. Oh, I'll make them try and make them laugh. I'll try and make them just to open me and two of my nephews drove from, I drove up to Portland and drove back down and two of my nephews came back down with me and I put on La Chona. (laughs) 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 And I was like, you guys want to hear a good song? And you got to tell me what you think about it. And I played it through the whole thing. And my nephews are very white passing. Mm-hmm. Like they're really, they're white passing and their last, mm-hmm. yeah, and they have like a really white last name and everything. But I make sure, Thea J makes sure, like, you know where you're from. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Man, you know, some people see that as, as a bad thing. And I'm like, I would have so much fun uh, if I could pass us anything else because you wow people. You really, really break that thinking, that that narrow thinking of what people are. Uh, mm-hmm. My husband passes as Polynesian, Tongan, Samoan, and Filipino. And for a long, long time, <laughs> he would not. I was like, man, just play with it. Go along. See what happens. And he did it one day. And he was like, wow, that was so insightful. And he's like, I kind of felt bad. But, you know, because this one guy, he just, uh, he kept insisting, no, man, you have to be Polynesian. Tell me, tell me where you're really from. And it was just hilarious. Also, just not just surprising people when you like if you speak another language but you look like you wouldn't speak another language yeah I uh, want my no, no I want my nephews to speak Spanish so bad they don't my sister doesn't speak Spanish uh-huh. but and it's okay because that yeah language is not what makes you who you are or, or what you, you absolutely know, you come from. But, but they yeah. know because especially when I lived in Dallas because I've cut back as much how much but when I lived in Dallas every time they would call me they're like I'm like oh I'm making dinner oh what are you making I'm like oh I'm making beans and rice and blah. and they're like oh my god yeah jay you're always making beans and rice <laughs> <laughs> hey that's two of my favorite foods okay i mean i could my mom would always say like you would be una a perfect pobre person you know because rice and beans i'm like yep 
That's all I need to survive. Girl, I have a girlfriend who's like, if you need to travel and save money, rice and beans, yep. rice and beans. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but you got to throw the tortillas in there too. I mean, yeah. I'm oh, from me Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. For you, it's fine. Yeah. For me, it <laughs> yeah. has to be, th- you have to throw the tortillas in there as well because mm-hmm. what kind of Mexican would I be? <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you a question. I'm going to, like, I want to pivot just a little bit because I know you're a veteran. You, both you and your husband are veterans. Right. And bullying comes in all forms. It does not stop when you're a child. In fact, I was bullied by a teacher when I was in high school. And I, like you were saying earlier, it happens at work. It happens. But there, over the last year in particular, there's been a lot that's come out in regards to how women are treated in the military. I come from a military family. I've talked to some of my cousins about this, and we're going to probably do a whole episode on this. Awesome. But what was your experience? in the army, in regards to how you were treated, not only like, were you actually, I don't even, I don't even know how to form this question. I feel like you already kind of know where I'm going with it. So can you just tell me like what your experience is? Did you feel like you had a voice when you were in there? Did you feel like you were bullied? Like what was your experience in that? So first, before I say anything negative, (laughs) because there (laughs) were some negative things, just like there are at any other institution. The military was a, a wonderful experience, a positive one overall for me. But yes, I did get bullied and I got bullied for many reasons. I got bullied for being young and rising up the ranks fast. I got bullied for being a woman. And those two were the most common reasons why I got bullied. And to give you an example, as a woman in an industry where you're one of the few. I mean, the military has many, many aspects, right? Like there's an industry that you can go into where you can be one of millions of women, like say nursing, because there's a lot of nurses, you know, but I was a mechanic. I was a mechanic on tracks, on on vehicles with tracks, so all the tanks and heavy wheel vehicles like tanks and and semis and everything. That is so awesome. Let me say that's a badass job. Thank you. Thank you. I'll take that. (laughs) It was exhausting. (laughs) It was a lot of work. So I'm already in the military, which is predominantly male and mostly unwelcoming of women. But I remember my very first job in South Korea. I get there with my battle buddy, TJ Jenkins, another woman, um, female who was uh, black and she was maybe like a year older than me. So we're both, I, I turned 19 the third day I was in South Korea. And she was, I think, 21. And both of us walk into our bay where we were going to work. And our supervisor, uh, I'll never forget this a-hole, <laughs> Sergeant First Class Foster, says, what the F are these women doing in my bay? They don't belong here. They need to go back home where they belong. And I was like, what the heck? And I look at my squad leader, a white guy who was really drunk, by the way. And he's like, don't worry about it. He's always like that. So what we were told all the time was to just brush it off. And so this black young woman who was an E5, so a young leader, she noticed what I was going through. And she said, you should go to EO. And I was like, what the heck is EO? Uh, equal opportunity uh, representative where you submit complaints of harassment of any type. And I said, you know what? I am going to go because I'm not going to take this. The man would not let us touch tools. So I mean, like, my job is to be a mechanic. And for the first three months, he said, all these women are going to do is clean up after the men because that's their job, not a mechanic. 
What? It was 1998, okay? Oh my god. Oh, uh, 99 cuz I was at the turn of the of, of the year. So, I go to a man, a white man, a lieutenant who's in charge of handling these cases and his response was pretty much I'm going to go ahead and investigate. The investigation took 3 days, which was pretty much just went and had a conversation with Sergeant Foster and then he found out that everything was true. He said, just brush it off. He's got three more months of his one-year duty here in South Korea. Just suck it up. And luckily, I had a warrant officer, Black and Asian man, Chief Wongus. I'll never forget this man. He was amazing. And he said, you know what? F him. I know that you've been told to do this, and, and I can't really pull strings. So the way that he got me and my buddy out of that situation is that he made me his driver, his full-time driver. And he was like, I know you're going to hate it because it's still not you doing your job, but you're going to be my driver until this man leaves. So you're not going to have to work with him. I learned so much from that man because while I was his driver, I mean, I still went and did some work in the bays, but he taught me a lot about how to get over discrimination. He was honest with me. He's like, you're a woman and they don't want you here. Lots of men won't want you here. And you need to be smart and outdo them. You need to get your military education. You need to get your college education. You need to go to promotion boards. You need to show them that you can do it because they're going to challenge you. And that's exactly what I did. And then when I moved on out of there and I went to Fort Hood, Texas, I had a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those fields, I used to always, I used to always look at them. I'm like, man, that's a perfect place to hide bodies. And here we Unfortunately, are. Unfortunately, yeah. yeah. But yeah, there too, another warrant officer, same thing. He's the reason why I became a homeowner at the age of 24. He was like, stop being stupid, Rivera. Like, why are you wasting your money on fancy cars and rims and all this crap? You need to buy a house. You need to invest in yourself. Oh my gosh. I know so many of my guy friends that did the same, like yeah. that were all about getting cars and mm-hmm. their rims. And yeah. Yeah. He's like, stop wasting it on, you know, these, uh, on clothes or whatever, which it wasn't me and my husband, because I got married pretty young at, at 20, actually. And I just got lucky. But along the way, everything I wanted to do, like every time I wanted to go to a promotion board, I was challenged because they were like, oh, you're too young. Oh, well, you just hit the, the timeline because you had to wait so many months or so many years before you apply to be uh, the next rank. And I was like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Why? If you task me out to do all these important jobs that you don't want others to do, why am I good enough for that? But I'm not good enough to be promoted. And the reason I was able to, to defend myself was because my husband who was, he's only three years, almost three years older than me. He would get so frustrated because I was that timid kid, pretty much, who would just say yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, because I was taught at home by my father, the controlling person, to always be the yes person, do what you're told. And that, I I realized, translated into the way that I took orders from authority figures, And my husband would always say, like, what the hell? You wear your freaking pants the same way as any other man. You're just as able as anybody else. So you get your butt over there and you go and ask for this or whatever. So it was him supporting. You know how many people are going to be like, or how many, does your husband have brothers? Does he have? (laughs) Unfortunately not. (laughs) (laughs) You know how many people are going to be like, um, that's awesome. He helped you find your voice and wanted to make sure you were using it. I love hearing that. And, you know, sadly, the one female that I found in my mechanic world 
she was this black woman, E7. And I remember at the time I was in E5, which that means she was pretty high up in the sergeant um, board. I was a E5, so a fresh new sergeant. And I got so excited when I saw her. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're the first female I meet that's also a mechanic. And she kind of was like, well, I don't know why you're so happy. You better like fend for yourself. You're on your own. And I was so disappointed. And the other thing I saw too is that there's a lot of racist division. I remember that up at the top, the people who selected others for promotions or for special duties and things like that, if it was like black leaders, they would predominantly choose black people to do this and that. And I remember Latinos, same, well, Latinos were more like anybody, whoever qualifies. Not always, of course, but there was a distinctive, like we could tell. And and I thought at first it was just me until I had a, a conversation with other Latinos. And they were like, have you noticed that every time we have a Black first sergeant, it's only like mainly Black people that get selected for this. And and I was like, wow, it's not just me. Because I was noticing, it's like little clicks. Mm-hmm. But it all depends on the environment and, you know, that... uh that culture within that unit, because not all of them are like that. So the reason I'm sharing this is because if people are listening to this and their kid or you're already in the military and you're new, do expect this, but also don't expect it every time because each unit, each company, each base is different. But don't go in with the mindset of, oh, it's the military. Everybody's going to be cool because we're all soldiers or we're all service members. It's just like the rest of the real world. You're well, everybody's to- human. We're all human. Exactly. The people bring in their their biases and their prejudices and all of those things. Yeah. So it really, naturally would show up in that way. Yeah. It's really hard to speak up in the military because of the fear of retaliation, which is very, very real. I experienced sexual harassment by a sergeant, Latino. The investigation lasted about a week. And it was inconclusive. Well, they came back and said, there's no evidence that he really harassed you. The person who was tasked out to do the investigation was a female Latina. So when she came to speak to me, I was like, oh, man, she's going to understand. And I was so wrong because after the investigation, I found out that not only was she his neighbor, they were drinking buddies. And she told me that herself. So I was devastated. And then after the investigation as retaliation, what they did was they tasked me out on this mission that was very, very far away. And I remember that was my first bout of depression as an adult. And I gained like 30 pounds in like four months. And it it really made me feel so crappy because I I was sent away as like I was the shame of the unit because I spoke out about this guy talking about my body. And he was like, how do you, like very graphic things, like you just don't ask certain things, mm-hmm. you know, to anybody. And, and uh, when I made that complaint, I it was my buddy who was a, a 19-year-old black kid who was sexually harassed by that same person. And we both submitted our complaints at the same time. And both of us were, we got retaliation. It's rough, but you know. Overall, it, that's not always gonna be the life in the military. Some people have better experiences. Overall, I mean, I did 10 years and the most exhausting part of being a service member is sometimes dealing with the toxic people, which they're out there just like anywhere else. Mm -hmm. 
But the best part of it was how much growth I got and how much I learned to defend myself and to help others. It was like the most rewarding job that I could have ever done, especially as a young person. Man, it really makes you discover yourself and discover your strengths and challenge yourself to step out of the box and do things that you would have never dreamed of. Oh, yeah, I bet. I want to respect your time and everything. But one of the things like I had asked you, if there was a word, one word that could describe your life, you said service. Why did you choose service? That's a good question. Nobody's ever asked me that. (laughs) (laughs) Because you know what? The first thing that came to mind when you just asked me that is because it's like naturally just, I feel that I need to be of service since I was little. For some reason, when I hear somebody has a problem, I immediately start thinking, this is how I can help this person. This is what I know that I can share so that I can help them be better or not be in pain or get up to the next step. So innately, I think it's always been in me. And I think the other part is because I know that if I help as many people as I can, that I'm contributing to leaving a legacy of goodness in the world. I don't want to look back and, and see, yeah, I made all this money. But how many lives did I impact in a positive way? And that's what I want my legacy to be. Speaking of legacy, and maybe not the most positive legacy, when it comes to bullying, how do you think our previous president, the orange man is what I call him, (laughs) how do you think his presence and the constant bullying that he did affected kids? I'm going to say this because I volunteered a lot at schools and I saw, I was shocked with how much attention kids were paying to to this person. I was very sad when I started hearing our own people, our own people of color refer to themselves the way that that man was referring to us. It was very heartbreaking. But at the same time, I also saw an uprising of youth. I mean, so young. I'm talking about fifth grade, fourth grade, writing letters and standing up. In mind, they're standing up for for what was right and in doing something about mm-hmm. these lies, these negative depictions of people of color. So I think that he did good and bad. He awoke something in some, and then sadly, he, he made some others believe all that negative stuff. I always wonder, like, what will we be looking back at in 50 years? You know, when we were like, remember back in when he was in office? And look at what happened. Look at this is how the world turned out because that happened back then. Yeah. And I'd like to be hopeful and say that this generation is... The generation that has had the most activism to not tolerate so much injustice. Mm -hmm. Some people will probably disagree with me because they're not the ones going to the marches or, you know, standing in front of the White House or other places with signs. But they're doing it in different ways because we have social media. We have technology now. Yeah. And it's it's incredible. So I I think... um, I think that good things are going to come of it. 
But I think that the fight is not going to be over as soon as some people think it is. I completely agree. Um, You know, one thing I forgot to ask you, and I want to make sure I Mm -hmm. ask you before we end everything. We were talking about social media and how we are so glad we did not grow up in an age of social media because that adds an extra layer of bullying. Yeah. How... Obviously, parents have to decide for themselves at what age they want their kids to have social media. But how do you talk to your kids about bullying on social media? Being, a, again, being a bully or being bullied, because that's something that can be hidden, right? Like mm-hmm. they can erase messages, they can create a finsta, they can do all of these things. How do you properly talk to your kids about using social media? not using it to bully, or if they're getting bullied, how do they handle that? This is such a good question because every child is different. So it's not even about the age of, you know, like how old should they be to be on there? It's more about the maturity and about how much you have spoken to them about bullying of all sorts to include, of course, cyber. But first, they have to have examples of what cyber bullying looks like because some people think, oh, this negative comment is just, they're not agreeing. But sometimes it's more than that. Sometimes it is cyberbullying. It is being offensive. Some people say, oh, they're just being passionate about that topic. No, don't confuse passion with offensing, offensiveness and you know, ill-spirited messages. Because the rule of thumb really for any situation is follow the golden rule. If it's not nice, you know, don't say it at all. And don't confuse disagreeing with somebody with not being nice you can still disagree with somebody in a nice way but we have to give kids examples and what I do with my kids is when I'm looking through something and something stands out I'm like hey I'm going to share this with my kids and I'm like hey look at this cyberbullying right there and I'm pretty sure that that person doesn't even realize that that's what it is and you know to just not be tolerant of it and report it and there's actual certain ways of reporting it. The sad thing is that when you report it on social media, that's where it ends. And I think that our, the social media moguls need to really step up the game and, and, and like, come on, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, like if something's reported, we need to know what the end result was. What are you doing to that person? But I also do understand that there's millions of people online every single minute, every second. So for them, it's also a challenge, but Again, you have the power of your voice and you can reach out to these organizations, provide ideas for solutions. But most of all, talk to your kids, show them what bullying looks like online, show them what social bullying looks like or verbal bullying, emotional bullying, physical bullying of all types. Because the more they know, the more likely that they're going to avoid it and that they're going to report it. And you know what? If you're going to give your kids access to the web first, like, or, or like their own device, ask, what is the main reason for them having access? Is it to learn or is it for just shenanigans? What value do you want them to get out of it? Yeah. And how willing are you going to be to monitor the activity? Because it's not about you not trusting them. It's about you not knowing what people are going to throw at them. There's everything out there. There's pedophiles reaching out to kids, especially during the pandemic. There's people who want to exploit them. There's human trafficking. There's uh, people who are trying to sell certain things like drugs or just other products to your kids. Uh, 
And you might think, oh, well, they're just trying to sell this toy to my kid. But you know what? It's a form of exploitation when you're pushing an ad to a child all the time because, you know, like you're being that persistence just for your own gain, not for the child. Um, and I mean, this is a whole nother conversation, but. Oh my, I know it's, 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 <laughs> it's, it totally could be. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, tell people, I know you have your website. It's dalitalks.com, D-A-L-I talks, T-A-L-K-S.com. But if you can, um, for people that want to learn more, that want to sign up for your workshops, but tell people how else on social media they can find you and reach you and uh, reach yeah, out. Yeah, so definitely through my website, and there's a link if you want to bring me into your school, your church, your own business, and have me educate your community, um, book an appointment with me on my website. At the very top, you'll see a green bar where you can book um, an appointment with me. But for free information and just to ask me any questions, DM me, send me a direct message on Instagram. And I'm also on Clubhouse. I'm always talking to people about That's how we met. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm on Clubhouse. So come on in. And But, you know, Instagram is probably the best way. And I love it on there because I can just have short little conversations with people, answer questions. And, and it's just a fun way to reach out and connect with people. Zali, we always bookend. We start with the wine and we end with the wine. So yep. what is your favorite type of wine, red, white or rosé? And do you have a particular type of wine that you like? I like rosé and I do not have a favorite. I like too many to choose. (laughs) Dali, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you. Salud. We'll do our little final salud. And until next time, mi gente. Ooh, that was a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Chisme on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media, at The Wine and Chisme on Instagram, and at The Wine and Chisme Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Chisme, subscribe rate and review five star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more